This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. It's great to be back. A few bits of housekeeping today before I dive into today's writer. One request came in from Ocean Frankar about the frequency of these episodes. Please note that I'll be releasing an episode every second week on Thursdays. Because I love Thursdays. It's a day that doesn't get enough love. Also, I've decided to shift my initial commitment to looking at writers by province and open it up more generally. I'll still represent writers from across the country, just not in any particular order. Also, a direct word of thanks to author Madeline Tian, who apparently listened to and appreciated the episode on her book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, and to Sharon Lacks, among others, who wrote a note of thanks about, quote, bringing my brain and heart back to what really matters, end quote. I was deeply touched by that. Thanks, Sharon. I hope I continue to do that for you and for others. So, today's episode. In October of 2020, a close friend and I were discussing the bleak state of the world, or at least our perception of that world. The scourge of COVID-19 across North America and vast parts of the globe, overrun hospitals, grieving family members. Remember the exceptional forest fires? A veritable inferno in California and other states along the West Coast. Smoke was billowing across the skies, forcing people to evacuate their homes and communities. And you'll remember it was drifting into other parts of the country, sometimes turning what should have been luminous days into cloudy, somber ones, and the sun an angry deep red. And then there were the riots in the United States and elsewhere that were expressions of anguish and frustration and trauma and anger at systemic injustices, at racism and violence that so many, too many people have experienced. I thought if I heard the word grim milestone one more time, I'd start walking into the walls out of sheer grief. And we hadn't even yet reached January 2021 with its own set of crises, political and otherwise. So, my friend paused, then asked, Is this, I mean, could this be the apocalypse? It was my turn to pause and reflect. I knew what she meant. By apocalypse, we usually mean a belief that the world, our world, is coming to an end by a form of devastation that's so comprehensive, there's no recovery. And it's often believed to be a result of either our own self-destructive tendencies or divine intervention, especially when we feel like displacing responsibility. It's characterized as the end of what we recognize as human time. But there's another understanding of apocalypse that's also associated with Revelation, and specifically the book of Revelation from the Bible, and it's meant to be the revealing of something of great importance, something divine, disclosed to humans by God, and an ushering in of an era of renewal and peace. I want us to hold fast to this secondary meaning of apocalypse, which I'll return to at the end of this episode. For now... Allow me to return to my friend's question. Have we arrived at the end of the world? I didn't address her question directly. 
Rather, I began to circle around and around her question by addressing what I knew about the apocalypse. And I just happened to know a thing or two because, as it happened, for my MA thesis, I focused on the four novels of Charlotte Bronte and her use of apocalyptic imagery. I discovered during the course of my research that apocalyptic literature tends to flourish around the end of Western civilization's calendar years, or at the end of its mark centuries when a sort of panic about the end of time sets in. I remembered, in fact, how on the eve of 1999, when it was believed all computers would crash, my own beloved Italian mother had prepared her cantina, that's Italian for cellar, which was teeming with enormous bins of pasta, barrels of water, tomato sauce, and canned goods. On January 1st, 2000, when everything carried on as usual, my mother smiled a little sheepishly at the family, shrugged and said, well, I guess we don't have to worry about food for a little while, as if we ever had to. The point is this. The preoccupation with the apocalypse and apocalyptic literature, with its fascination with endings, tends to flourish now and then, when hope is low and despair is high, when we travel into our own hearts of darkness, into anguish, desolation, and depression, when we may even desire an ending because we can't tolerate the world any longer as it is. It's no wonder, for example, that there's been a recent burst of apocalyptic material that pertains to life-threatening viruses and that tend to be more disaster-based. And that material, by the way, includes the movie Contagion that appeared while we were confronted by a similar situation with COVID-19. One such novel appeared just as we began to grapple with the repercussions of the virus. Salima Nawaz's Songs for the End of the World. Published by McClellan and Stewart, this novel is no slim read, so reader, beware. But it's entirely worth the effort, I promise you. And I don't think you'll feel like it's an effort either. Nawaz has this gentle, accessible, nimble way of writing. It makes the reading easily digestible, even if the characterization and the ideas are actually quite complex. I would even say that I felt nourished, soothed, and sustained by the reading. This is an odd thing to say about a novel that is about a global pandemic and about humans perhaps bearing witness to a potential apocalypse. I should note that Nawaz researched and wrote her novel before COVID-19 hit. She'd rigorously investigated pandemics about possible repercussions before we experienced it firsthand, and she published it just as we began to experience lockdowns and restrictions. But I'll explain why I found the novel so encouraging in just a few minutes when I return to the secondary meaning of Apocalypse. First, let me say something more about the plot and the narrative form of Songs for the End of the World. One of the things I absolutely love about this novel is that the form she adopts reflects its content. Nawaz initially wrote the novel as a series of short stories, even as the characters' lives intersect at junctures. Now, we would properly call this a short story cycle when we're not tracking the life or storyline of one particular character. Initially, these various narrative strands seem to operate in isolation from one another. That is, the characters in this novel are living in these highly detached or disconnected lives, communicating in ways that are brief or arbitrary or inconsequential as they battle the virus in their own little enclosed spaces. Sound familiar? 
They're locked in their own silos of existence, and this is the way many of the characters seem to think their survival is to be secured. Slowly, however, there's a definitive change as communication gradually shifts toward connection, and so these discrete stories become increasingly intertwined, signaling how we live in ways that may be independent, but also interdependent. The use of these short stories is thus a smart structural feature of the novel because it underscores that however much the characters feel they are isolated, they're in fact far more connected than they think or feel. The novel opens in New York City in August 2020. It's hard to believe that Nawaz was so prescient, but she really was. The opening story focuses on Elliot, a first responder who has had to self-isolate for a period of three weeks because he's been exposed to this mysterious virus affecting the world. As epidemiologists work on determining the source and scientists on the cure, the origin of the contagion begins to spiral around this young woman named Edith. She's an exchange student from China who's referred to as Aramis Girl. And so this unleashes the most appalling and growing nationwide anti-Asian sentiment. Uncanny, right? The narrative shifts in time back and forth from 1999 to 2020 and back and forth from narrative lines and perspectives of different characters, including academics, medical practitioners, and members of this band called Dove Sweet, which, by the way, made me think of the band Arcade Fire. In the novel, Dove Sweet holds this concert in Canada during the pandemic, and it becomes a spreader event. It effectively and tragically also ushers in the virus into Canada. It's Emma, one of the lead singers of the band, who, upon experiencing her own tragedy, develops the track Song for the End of the World, after which, of course, the novel is so named. The song offers a significant moment in relation to reconnection and redemption, which really is a key theme in the novel. Well, one of my favorite narrative strands pertains to the successful novelist, Owen, who in some ways anticipates the virus coming, not unlike Nawaz herself. Owen purchases a boat, and in an extreme form of self-isolation, he escapes by heading out into the ocean far from the reaches of all humanity, isolated with one woman named Sarah and her son, Noah. Owen is a renowned womanizer, and he's badly treated the woman he loved the most, his wife Rachel. Their subsequent divorce is in part the result of his philandering ways, but it's also because of his refusal to have children with her, which short-circuits the relationship. This is Nawaz reading from the novel. He could already see how it would go. For her, the future was children. But children would be the end of their relationship, the end of his writing, the end of his days alone. Children were like a plague upon the earth, eating up everybody's time and freedom. Owen's assumptions about children, about their role in his life, and even about the desirability of being alone will be fundamentally challenged. If no man is an island, neither is man a solitary captain on the boat. And please excuse the masculinist permutations here. Upon climbing aboard this boat with Sarah Noah, Owen has, in some sense, already confirmed this understanding at some level, however unconscious. Still, the reader expects him to behave in fairly predictable ways, perhaps hitting on Sarah. Well, at least this reader certainly did. Except that Sarah resists this pattern, and Noah then has an entirely different effect on Owen, on his expectations about children. 
In the process, Owen increasingly learns to respect Sarah and to love Noah. And in loving Noah, he himself develops really opening himself up to others, to genuine connection, so that he and Sarah watch over Noah with this touching vigilance. The references to the names of the characters, Noah, Rachel, Sarah, for some of you, these will be immediately apparent. And for those of you for whom it's not, I'll just quickly say that Noah is a reference to a biblical Old Testament story called Noah's Flood. As a quick recap, in Noah's Flood, the entire world is destroyed, except for Noah and his family, who climb aboard a ship with two of each species of all animals and insects, and then they seal up the boat as the world is subsumed by water. One version of Apocalypse, to be sure. For the purposes of today's episode, I want us to think further on the relevance of that story, of what it means to isolate ourselves to the point that we stand back and passively bear witness to the ruin of the world around us. Within the context of the story of the flood, Noah is being obedient to the directives he was given. In our present moment, we are also being given directives to wear masks, to self-isolate, But while being mindful of similar directives in the novel, these characters must navigate carefully. As Nawaz reminds us, there's a difference between prudence and selfishness, between caring for the community and caring for one's self-interests. At the same time, Nawaz reminds us of the importance of caring for others who are isolated from the group and from the community, as in the case of Aramis Girl of reaching out to those individuals in isolation, even if it means somewhat compromising what is seen to be a communal understanding or a communal ideal. Allow me to return to Owen's story to explain. In his extreme form of self-isolation, he has become disconnected from the rest of the world, even as he espouses his own ideals. Now, This is an odd thing to say about a man who's a highly successful novelist, but we already know that his failed marriage to Rachel is about this fundamental disconnection. In his concern with Noah, however, he begins to open himself up to others, really open himself up, to see that perhaps his own standards of conduct and his conviction that children will undermine his writerly endeavors has actually injured his imaginative and emotional life, stifling and even injuring a large part of himself. Self-love ideally and properly extends toward love for a family unit or a close set of friends or neighbors and so forth, expands further perhaps toward a national community, if not an international one. So Owen is confronted by this choice, to love himself alone or to love those around him too. He chooses Sarah's son, Noah. When Noah falls ill, Both Sarah and Owen fear he has contracted the virus, so they find the nearest shore of the country to which they can take Noah for immediate medical attention. Owen scoops up Noah in his arms, carries him to the shore, and approaches the medical center. And only when he is inside the center does he realize he's not wearing any protective gear. This is Noah's reading from her novel. When he realized he'd forgotten his protective gear on the boat, he experienced a fleeting panic followed by a profound sense that they had surrendered themselves to fate. But having arrived at a moment of clarity and deciding to head to shore, he was not so easily going to give it up. It was the call of absolute duty that he had answered, and the fact that he had heard it, that he had done the right thing, seemed almost blessed. 
Owen had spent his life being pensive and equivocal, but there was peace and certainty in giving in to an impulse beyond reason. This is a key moment in the novel, for it's a moment when, to return to one of the original meanings of Apocalypse that I gave at the beginning of the episode, something is revealed to him of great importance, something almost divine, by which he experiences both renewal and peace. His concern for someone else allows him to rise above self-concern. In this moment, not wearing a mask is not a gesture of independence or an assertion of one's rights, but contradictorily an expression of deep caring for someone else. Sonawaz reminds us, each time we decide to care for more than just ourselves, for a larger community, there is a cost, yes but there's also something to be gained. Sometimes we must operate with different kinds of communities, communities that actually come into conflict or work against a set of values that we hold dear. Sometimes these conflicts just can't be reconciled. Sometimes we can't see how we might reconcile these conflicts or understand that some of our own self-interest must be forfeited for the greater good. Sometimes I'm saying we lose sight of the greater good the best good, if you will. Nawaz's eye is on the largest community of all, humanity itself. And so her novel, Songs for the End of the World, reminds us that even as we experience apocalypse now and then, love and patience, overwhelming communal love that transcends differences, is necessary to build solidarity and strength and a future, even in the face of apocalypse. For today's takeaway, I'm recommending Clara Duplessis, poet, critic, and literary curator. At the early stages of her career, she's already an accomplished poet. Her debut collection won the 2019 Pat Lather Memorial Award, but I recently picked up and had the pleasure of reading Hell, Light, and Flesh, a collection that was published by Palimpsest Press. It's a startling collection. It's marked by a series of revelations. Can you see why I'm recommending her book in today's episode? As the poetic persona navigates the legacies of social and familial violences and trauma, at times I'm not even sure that reading is the right word to describe the act by which we engage with the collection. The sprawl of words in some instances, the sound waves and ominous blocks of ink that almost glare at us from the page, alongside this poetic, evocative diction from which we can intuit so much. The first section plunges into the depths of a dark psychological underworld and shifts toward the second section, light, and of course, illumination. The elasticity of creating, she notes in this section, goes hand in hand with violence. Duplessis explores the duality of violence and creation, their embeddedness, coming to a sense of herself in the third section, flesh, in which she finds a means to, quote, command the violence, this is a mark, a prize possession, pride and honor and participatory. The note of triumph is there. The poetic persona has navigated the underworld of violence and come out on the other side, an accomplished artist and poet. Well, that's it for this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Join me for the next episode when I discuss a book I've just finished reading and absolutely love, 
Cold Case North by Michael Nest in collaboration with Deanna Rutter and Eric Bell. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.